This is God's word, and so we say, thanks be to God. So last week we saw what the Apostle Paul was all about, the passion that he had to know Christ. Uh, We saw how he considered his old resume as a deeply religious and upstanding man, uh, as a way of credentialing himself before God or others. He considered all of that total garbage, tossed out the resume compared to the spiritual credentials gifted to him by faith in Jesus Christ. But our verses for today add an important layer of understanding that could help clear up some potential misunderstandings that many people have about what it means to live the Christian life. And both Christians and non-Christians can get confused about this. So if you're here today or if you're uh, just tuning in, watching, and you're not a Christian or not sure exactly what that means or if you are, I hope that this will be helpful to you as well today. Uh, But the confusion essentially goes something like this. If God just forgives you of all of your sin, if you have the righteousness of Christ, as Paul calls it, if it's all a done deal, then why try so hard to be good now? What's the motivation? To keep going and live a holy life. You know, if you're all set, you're going to heaven and such uh, later on, no matter what you do. Uh, I had the same exact question posed to me by Imam at a local mosque here a few years ago. And one of the things I love about Muslim people is they are not afraid to talk about religion with you. Now I took a tour of the mosque and then I sat down for coffee with these two Muslim imams and we we began to have a cordial conversation about our faiths and about the differences between our faiths. And after I had a chance to explain what I thought was so amazing about Christianity, you know, the the amazing grace uh, of God freely offered to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Uh, The imam said something to me like, yes, that all sounds great, but if God just freely gives you his grace regardless of what you do, then why try to be good anymore? Plus, he said, and this was the stinger, so many Christians who don't seem, I, I see so many Christians who don't seem to care about living very holy lives, so it seems like grace can actually just make moral slackers out of people. And of course, he has a point, but I wanna argue that this stems from a deep misunderstanding of what it means to live as a Christian. Here in this passage, Paul gives at least three reasons why Christians should exert tremendous effort in their spiritual lives, even after they've come to receive and rest in the grace of God in Christ. So at least three reasons. And this would be to run hard because one, you still have progress to make. Two, you have a prize to pursue. And then three, you have power to run. So run hard because you still have progress to make. Run hard because you have a prize to pursue. And run hard because you have power to run. So first, run hard because you still have progress to make. Uh, See what Paul says in the first part of verses 12 and 13. He starts the passage, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. And then the beginning of verse 13, he says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. What is he talking about? What is it that he hasn't obtained or made his own yet? And this is why I had us read those preceding verses, particularly verses 10 and 11. Paul says, I don't fully know Christ yet. He isn't fully like Christ yet. He still has farther to go as a Christian. Paul still has gaps, sinful pockets of selfishness. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul will refer to himself in the present tense as the chief of sinners. And this isn't just false humility. And he basically repeats himself twice to make his point. And the second time, he calls attention to his statement when he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Today he might say, real talk, fam. You need to know I have not arrived. Sometimes the Google Maps voice tells me when I get to my destination, you have arrived. To which, of course, I say, wow, thank you very much. But Paul, the Paul, the great missionary of the early church who traveled the Roman Empire preaching the gospel, persecuted, beaten, imprisoned for the gospel. Paul, the great theologian of the early church who wrote most of our New Testament letters. Paul says, I have not arrived as a Christian. And Paul is as good as they come. He would have been the most mature Christian that the Philippians knew. He was their hero. He was their father in the faith. Here's my point. In this life, none of us will fully arrive at Christian maturity. The most mature Christian you know has not arrived. You and I will always have progress to make. Now, at first that might sound discouraging, but really it's a good thing for us. So don't fall prey to a line of thinking that says, oh, you know, oh well, well, if I'm not gonna ever really be rid of my sin and able to live for God 100%, then what's the point? For Paul, his gaps only served to motivate him. This is one of those paradoxes at the heart of the Christian faith that makes more sense in practice than it does in theory, but a mature understanding of Christian growth is neither self-reliant where you're living for God out of your own natural strength, but nor is it passive, sitting on your hands and just waiting for God to magically transform you. A mature understanding of Christian, or a true understanding of Christian maturity is God reliant and active. Paul says at the end of this section, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So his irony in his statement here is that true Christian maturity means realize you, you aren't really all that mature. You haven't arrived, but you will press on. And along those lines, let me just encourage any of you here who have been following Jesus for quite some time, maybe many years now. Let me just encourage you, as you mature in your faith, don't slow up. Runners quicken their pace when they approach the final stretch of their race. But for all Christians, the fact that we still have progress to make can protect us, both from pride or despair. And recognizing our weak spots keeps us humble. After Paul proclaims himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy, he also says that God had mercy and patience on me as the chief of sinners so that he might display his perfect patience and love towards others. So being able to humbly recognize our own sins and flaws is one of the most powerful witnesses that we have to offer others of the reality of Christ's undeserved mercy and that it's always undeserved. Still having progress to make keeps us from pride. But it should also keep us from despair because you need to know that failure and sin and remaining gaps are part of the normal Christian experience. Christians will continue to fail and be deeply frustrated by their own fallen selves. You cannot just pray your way 
into a state of full, total, permanent, unceasing, unwavering devotion to Christ. You can't just let go and let God and then ah, voila, you're perfected. Early on in my Christian journey, um, I was uh, influenced and helped in many ways by devotional writers like Andrew Murray, who I still greatly respect as a devoted, sincere Christian man and still, still helped by him in many ways. But in Murray and others like him, there's a strand of teaching, um, sometimes called Keswick theology, that teaches that the way to reach varsity level Christian experience is by sincerely, fully surrendering all self-will to God, normally after a moment of spiritual crisis. And the idea is that after a final decision to fully renounce your sinful nature, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. He'll usher you into a deeper experience of the Christian life in which you can rest and experience the blessing of the victorious Christian life. But of course, the problem with this is that over the course of your life, you uncover more layers of sin and selfishness and you realized you weren't as fully surrendered as you thought you were. As one person put it, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off of the altar, right? And this can cause great despair when you hit that point and realize that Christians, you realize as a Christian, you still haven't hit varsity. You're still getting your act together. You still fall prey to temptation and sin. My point here is simply this. If you find yourself repeatedly frustrated that you just can't seem to hack living as a Christian, welcome to the club. There is no hack. According to Paul, Christian change is a lifelong, gradual, progressive, day-by-day, active struggle. There are no shortcuts. Now, that's not to say that God can and certainly does work through crisis moments of decision in our lives. I'm not undercutting that. Sometimes we grow by leaps and bounds, and God does heavy, decisive work in us. But according to this passage, we will always have progress to make in this life. And you will always have an active role in making progress and in persevering in a long, steady obedience in the same direction. As J.I. Packer put it, the Christian's motto is not so much let go and let God as it is trust God and get going. Now, if we were to stop here, you might be tempted to think, okay, well, you're, no one's perfect. I, yeah, I know that. Uh, and you're saying that's just how it's going to be. Oh, well, I guess I don't really need to work too hard at this after all. Let's just put it in cruise control. Well, not so fast. Run hard because you have a prize to pursue. Paul turns his uh, imagery to athleticism, probably the Greek games that have been going on for a long, long time as his metaphor of choice. I guess preachers have just always liked sports analogies, and this is his. So verse 12, listen to his words. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on or I strive to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on, or again, strive. This word was used to Paul formerly when he persecuted or chased down Christians to arrest them. He says, I strive toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul chooses intense words here of focus, of strain to convey his passion for pursuing Christ. I just wonder, man, could that type of language be used to describe your pursuit of Christ? 
Paul means to protect us from complacency here in our Christian life. I mean, you hear his singular focus. One thing I do, I press on. You know, sometimes people ask me, I suppose because of my small frame and aerodynamically shaped head, uh, if I am a runner. And I usually tell them it depends if they intend on chasing me or not. You know, I'm not one of those people that just uh, likes to run for running's sake or even for exercise sake. But I do love a good race. I love a good foot race. The only real race I've ever done is one of those mud runs uh, where you go through obstacles, climb through mud or over obstacles and did a 6K with my brother. And it was tough, but it was a blast. Because for me, there needs to be a goal or a prize or a reason to run. You know, if I'm just jogging in my neighborhood, I find lots of excuses to stop running. You know, oh, there's a squirrel. I'll just walk up this hill, then I'll run down the other side. But not if I'm in a race, it's different. Paul wants you to know that you're in a race The Christian life is not an aimless jog or a casual stroll. It requires intentionality and focus. It's pretty hard to run a race if you don't even realize you're in one. He also means to protect us from distraction in our Christian life. I have it on good authority, i.e. Rob Craig, track coach, director of runner's camp, uh, track star at UNC and Brevard College, that when you're running a race, you are trained to never look back. It can be so tempting, right, to check on where the other runners are or look at, uh, if you're at a big race, like all the fans or cameras, but all of that is wasted effort. Runners are trained to keep their eyes on the finish line. It throws off your rhythm. It's, uh, it causes you to run less than your best when you look back. So Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. What does he mean? That sounds like two things. Well, it's the same thing with two parts. Forgetting what lies behind. Certainly Paul doesn't mean just completely forgetting his past. He just recounted to us part of his story for us in the previous verses. But he means that his focus as a Christian is never on what's behind. It's always on what is forward. It's an intentional decision to not be obsessed with or stuck in his past. Maybe for you there's something in your past that has hampered your ability to look forward and take your next steps towards knowing and serving Christ. Maybe these are good things. Maybe it was a prior season of spiritual health or ministry effectiveness that you just wish you could go back to. Or maybe it's a nostalgic longing for easier days or happier times in your past. Ecclesiastes 7.12 warns us, don't say in your heart, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. And maybe it's time for some of us to let go of a longing to return to the past and to move forward with what lies ahead. Or maybe in your past, there's not so good things. Your own failures that you can't seem to get over and you're caught in a cycle of sin and shame. Or maybe you were hurt in your past and you're still chained down by the pain or the shame of that. You can't seem to move forward. And of course, we should deal with our sins. We should deal with our hurt or our trauma from our past. And in fact, admitting those and getting help with them is part of moving forward. But forward, we must go. 
Uh, the movie Chariots of Fire is based on the true story of the life of Eric Liddell, known as the Flying Scotsman. And he's most famous for having won a gold medal in the 1924 Paris Olympics in the 400 meter after withdrawing from his best event, the 100 meter dash, because it was going to be held on Sunday. So Liddell was a devout Christian and a strict Sabbath keeper. And so his decision not to run in the 100 meter caught him a lot of attention and a lot of flack. But before running in the Olympics, uh, one of the races that made him famous was a race between the best runners from Scotland, Ireland, and England. Just a little friendly competition there, right? And a few strides into the race, Liddell got tangled up with another runner and was knocked to the dirt. And his opponent sped on ahead. Liddell hesitated for a moment and then stood back up and began to try to chase down his competitors, now 20 yards ahead. There was no way. You don't fall down in a race like that and get back up and win. But Liddell did. He gave it everything he had, and by the finish line, he had caught up and he won the race. Maybe you feel like you have fallen into the dirt and everyone else is so far ahead of you as a Christian, but your race is not over. You must forget what lies behind, go forward to what lies ahead. Paul will not allow himself to be distracted by his sufferings, his failures, his achievements, or even by other runners. His eyes are fixed ahead on the finish line where he will one day claim the prize of fully and finally embracing Christ. So run hard because you have a race to run and you have a prize to pursue. Now again, if we were just going to stop here, you might feel discouraged. You might say, yeah, I just don't have that kind of focus or energy, the kind of drive to love God or serve him or keep going. You're telling me, give it all I've got but I don't feel like I have anything to give. Maybe that's how some of you might feel. But you have more than you think. The last point, run hard because you have power to run. Look at this passage and see how it's laced with power for the Christian life. Verse 12 again, Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Why does he press on? Because Christ Jesus has already made him his own, not in order to become one of God's own, but because he has made us one of his own. Uh, the most famous line from Chariots of Fire uh, went something like this. Eric Liddell said in the movie, God made me, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Dear Christian, God has made you to run after him. You belong to him. And if he has the ability to open your eyes to your need for him, to forgive you of all of your sin, to make you his child, his heir, to raise you with Christ, to seat you with Christ, and seal you in Christ, he can get you to the finish line. Don't give up. Paul says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Other translations render this, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Or another, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me. If you've ever watched a race, or if, especially if you've been to runner's camp. Anybody been to runner's camp one of these years around here at North Wake? Yeah. And you watch the kids run their races on like the last day of, with all the track competitions. When they run and their parents are there, when you see those kids get to like the last, the last stretch of the, of the race 
And you hear the parents start to cheer for him. Go, go, Johnny, you know, you, oh, that's funny. I didn't mean to do that as a song. Um, Go, you know, you can make it, you can make it. You see him get around the bin. And just a whole new wave of energy moves into these kids. You can see it on their face. They hear their parents' voices and and they move, they they go. And that's just the voice of a mere human. The call of God started you in this race and the call of God will give you strength to finish it. His voice quickens your pace with his power. He graciously beckons us onward to the finish line. Maybe you heard it in the song this morning. Don't look back. Don't give up now. The pain cannot compare to the reward. When you will reach the end of your race and collapse into the arms of your father and know his eternal embrace. You see, God's gracious call on us is not moral slackness or even forgiveness, as amazing as forgiveness is. God's grace changes a person. It gives them a new heart to run after him. Grace doesn't just pardon people. It gives them a new heart. It transforms them and empowers them to live for him. Not all at once, not immediately, not perfectly, but gradually and certainty, certainly. So when the Muslim imam asked me, if God just freely gives you his grace, regardless of what you do, why try to be good anymore? Uh, The scene that came to my mind was a scene from the book slash play slash movie, Les Miserables. I'm not dedicated enough of a reader to have read that monster of a book, but I have seen both the Hugh Jackman and the Liam Neeson movies. And I asked him if he had seen it, and he said no. And I was like, oh, great. So I had to like tell the whole story, which was fun. But the scene that came to my mind is the scene when Jean Valjean, the main character, uh, first escapes from a prison labor camp. He's a hardened man on the run. Uh, But one night he's kindly taken in by a priest and his wife for dinner. But during the night, Jean Valjean decides to betray his host and knock him out cold and steal all of his silverware, which apparently used to be made out of actual silver, so it's like expensive, right? The only problem is that the next day, Jean Valjean is caught and returned by the soldiers to the priest's home. And so the captain of the soldiers tells the priest, you know, we've caught the vagabond who's run off with your silver and that he would promptly be returned to the, the shipyard, the labor yard, to work as a slave until his dying day. To which the priest says, Ah, yes, thank you for returning this man to me, my friend. And then he goes up to Jean Valjean and looks at him and says, My friend, you forgot the best part of the silver, the candlesticks. He goes inside and gets the the ornate silver candlesticks that sat on their dining room table and puts them in a bag and gives them to Jean Valjean and tells the soldiers, Release him, let him go. And the soldiers are confused, but they do as the priest says and they leave. And the priest looks at Jean Valjean and says, with this silver, I have bought your soul for God. You must use it to become a new man. And at that moment in the story, Jean Valjean is absolutely wrecked by the priest's grace. Tectonic plate shifting begins happening in his soul as he struggles mightily with what to do with this. And uh, in the soliloquy from the musical, I'll read a, I'm not gonna sing it to you, I'm gonna read a couple of lines to you. He said, why did I allow that man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above. One word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me I have a soul. How does he know what spirit comes to move my life? 
You see, if you experience the radical mercy of God for you, to know that one word from him and you would be lost in misery forever, and yet to also know that he gave his life on a bloody cross for your freedom, that will wreck you. It will mess with you and it will violently birth new life within you that gives you power to want to love God, not because you have to, but because he loves you. And so 1 Peter 1 says it, that you come to know that you're ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold like the candlesticks from the story, but with the precious blood of Christ. This is what will give you power to continue running as a Christian, overwhelming grace. And so Paul ends this section by encouraging us to hold true to what we have attained, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God given through him. It's not in competition with effort. It fuels it more than anything else. So I don't know if you feel today, if you feel weak or just defeated or worn down as a Christian, like you're out of gas, you need to know that you have power to run. Or maybe some of you have stopped really running after Christ because you forgot that you were in a race in the first place or you've become so distracted and enamored with all the things along the track. You have power to run too. You have a prize to pursue. Get back up, get back on the track. You were made to run this race. So put everything you have into what lies ahead, into your next steps towards Christ. Forget what lies behind. Strain forward to what lies ahead. He will give you the strength to run. So run hard. Let's pray.